The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. This is mini-episode 52.5. These are the episodes where we go deeper into the magazine, checking out those nitty-gritty details we didn't have time for on the main episode. So this is exciting, guys. Episode 52 was a hoot. I mean, we talked a lot of X-Files. We talked a lot of Star Wars. I mean, we talked comics, too, but it did feel like that was a little bit of a a break from the normal deep-down nerdy stuff, right? That was uh, definitely interesting to get Annie Flowers' take on that whole world that she's familiar with, and then on the flip side, the stuff she knew nothing about that we all love so much. It was great to have Steven back on the podcast as well. Uh, Just a reminder, as you're listening to this, if you haven't checked it out yet, we had a bonus episode that came out, the Bad Girls special. Yes, the Bad Girls trend, which we have covered quite a bit here on the mini-episodes. I decided to invite my wife on. Yes, so if you like talk about boobs and butts, Uh, you'll want to listen to that because that's pretty much all it is. (laughs) My wife is not shy about discussing those incongruities with the fashion sense and the, you know, world of female anatomy. So definitely something to check out. It was a lot of fun. I can't believe we actually talked for two hours. I cut it down to an hour and a half (laughs) because at a certain point, maybe it's just too much. But a lot of fun stuff you'll learn about me, about our relationship, in addition to the world of bad girls, which you're already familiar with. But another thing you're familiar with is the fact that we love to get into those contests here on the mini-episodes. So let's check out Cap's Kooky Contests. So this first one here is the Write Your Own Invite Contest, which is kind of weird. It says, aside from being famous for publishing nefariously thrilling comics like Evil Ernie and Lady Death, Chaos Comics is also pretty darn famous for partyability. Nobody throws a Halloween bash like the Chaos folks, so it's no surprise that the Chaos Halloween Party is the comic book social event of the season, and invites are scarce. Only the creme de la creme get to come. Want to wrangle an invite to this bash? Well, maybe you can, by writing your own. They have a giant picture of Brian Polito who's reaching out with kind of these clawed hands that says, Your wild and chaotic host, Brian Polito. No, Mr. Polito's right hand, not shown actual size. (laughs) Definitely a perspective issue there. But I had no idea that Chaos Comics was known for their party ability. Yes, the fact that they were throwing the best bashes, which I believe may have been overtaken by the guys at Marvel Knights, or they were probably still just event comics, but Joe Casada, Jimmy Palviotti, we've heard from people on the wizard files that worked for wizard that they threw crazy bashes you can't even talk about and i've heard about a few of the activities off the mic so yeah (laughs) agreed but over here we have lady death looking to evil ernie and they're both saying in unison let's party so how to play we want you to show off your artistic writing and drafting skills by creating an invitation for a chaos comics halloween party and remember this is chaos where darkness dwells so fluffy bunnies and chirping bluebirds probably won't get you too far we'll rifle through all the entries we get narrow them down to the best 11 looking for quality and originality of course then we'll ship those off to our buddies at chaos and they'll pick the big winner it is their invite after all yes that's right 
their invite. Look below. The heavenly prizes. Grand prize. One lucky party animal will actually get their design used as the official Chaos Comics Halloween party invitation for 1996. Oh yeah. They'll also get an all expenses paid trip to the 96 Halloween bash to be held at a double secret location. Ooh, spooky. Ten talented runners up will receive a complimentary one year membership in the Chaos Comics Evil Ernie Lady Death Fiend Club, along with all rights and responsibilities thereof. Learn the secret handshake. I still can't believe that they got away with calling their fed club the Fiend Club, which for Misfits fans, you're very aware that the Fiend Club was their less popular. I don't know, maybe they were the same levels of popularity, but Misfits were pretty underground in their time as compared to how much play I'm sure Chaos Comics was getting here in the 90s. But yeah, so all you got to do is literally write up and draw up your invitation. And there it goes. Of course, Wizard itself known for some wild Halloween parties. So they were no slouches. But let's check out the tasty legal dip. <laughs> Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Chaos Comics, their immediate families, and Purgatory. That nasty ass vampire broad just can't be trusted at a party. Wow. Okay, Wizard. Calm down. Offer void were prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purpose and rules hereof. Then again, we understand Purgatory can sure mix up a mean Bloody Mary. And no killer robo-rabbits either, people. No killer robo-rabbits? Bloody Mary? I, I don't get that reference, guys. You're gonna have to tell me about that on social media. Robo-rabbits and Bloody Marys? Unless that was part of Purgatory's miniseries. Alright, on to the next contest. Now, this next contest is kind of crazy because it is a two-page spread, as most of the contest pages are, but it is split up between the poster that is shoved in the middle of the magazine, which is for a James Cameron Terminator two series of comics which we talked about on a previous episode then the other side is telling you all about the phoenix resurrection event happening in the ultraverse over at marvel at this point so kind of crazy but anyway i will see if, my, if i can do my best here to jump between the pages so this is the simpsons treehouse of horror trivia contest want to win some neat stuff from bongo comics and the simpsons well you came to the right place just answer three simple trivia questions from past and present simpsons halloween specials the answers to all of which can be easily found by watching the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror special on October 29th, 1995 and mail them in. If you get them all right, you could win these great things. Grand prize, one lucky winner who gets all three questions right will receive their very own brand new super exciting animation cell from the Treehouse of Horror Halloween special itself. But wait, there's more! You'll even get the 48-page Bart Simpsons Treehouse of Horror comic special with stories written by Mike Allred, James Robinson, and Jeff Smith, signed by none other than Simpsons creator Matt Groening. First prize, 10 lucky winners will each get a frighteningly funny Treehouse of Horror comic special signed by that graining guy. Wow, all of those are exceptionally cool. I'm going to test my knowledge here because I was a super Simpsons fan just watching the episodes over and over again. I filled up videotapes of the reruns. They used to run two every afternoon, which is actually kind of crazy to me now. But let's take a look here. What does Homer sell his soul for in The Devil and Homer Simpson? I sell his soul for a donut, of course. Or even some deleted seeds that they featured later on a special. Uh, number two, what does Bart change Homer into in the Twilight Zone, Bart? The Jack in the Box, Homer. And number three, according to Homer, what movie does the third dimension look like? Uh, did anybody see that movie, Tron? No. 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 Yes. I mean, no. 
<laughs> so yeah, that is awesome. Wow, I got him, guys. I could totally win an animation cell or at least a side comic. All right, now let's check out... Oh no, the legal text monster. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Bongo Comics, 20th Century Fox, and their immediate families, or anyone who would steal someone's trick-or-treating bag. I saw that happen to Trent Staves once. What an ugly sight. He cried like a girl. So is Trent Staves somebody's friend, or is Trent Staves a character from a movie? I don't don't know. If you know, again, social media, hit us up. Now, offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purpose and rules hereof. Circus peanuts? Who put circus peanuts in my bag? I'm gonna find out, go back there, and kick over their pumpkin! Yeah, circus peanuts, definitely not a favorite of mine. I would probably take a couple of nickels in a bag, which was also common, <laughs> over circus peanuts. Alright, now let's get to this last contest here that tells us it is a create a villain contest. Hey, you! Yeah, you! Mr. Hotshot Comic Creator Wannabe, want a villain of your very own creation to appear in a future issue of Malibu's Rune? Sure you do. We all want things, don't we? I want Cindy Crawford sitting on a big old pot of gold waiting on my doorstep when I get home. And that never happens. And you don't see me complaining now, do ya? Sorry, I got carried away there. Well, you can actually fulfill this particular wish, and you don't even have to find the end of a rainbow. The grand prize, one lucky reader who sends in the best bad guy will have his or her creation appear in an upcoming issue of the horrifying Rune. You'll receive credit as the build's creator, and since you're now a professional, you'll even be paid a hundred American dollars. First prize, ten winners will each get a rune cardboard stand-up five and a half feet worth of vicious vampire guaranteed to intimidate any door-to-door -door salesman into crap in his drawers. Second prize, twenty readers will each get a copy of the brand spanking new rune number one autographed by that nifty neat artist Kyle Hotz. Create a villain, eh? Let's see how they want it to happen. We want you to create a villain for rune, but since rune is a pretty nasty guy himself, being a vampire eats heads and stuff, your villain had better be double damn mean and double damn tough and truly nasty and ugly too. Draw your favorite villain, or if you can't draw a straight line without a ruler, you can describe your villain. Show us what your villain would look like. Tell us what his or her powers would be. Don't know where to start? Check out this month's crash course on page 44, then go gonzo evil on us. Your villain, should he be deemed the nastiest of the bunch, will be used in an upcoming rune comic. Pretty keen, huh? Yeah, so I have to imagine at this point most comic companies were kind of desperate. It's just like, what can we possibly create anymore? You know, from 1992 to 1995, it was just kind of out of control of new, 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 new. And at a certain point, you're just out of ideas. But uh, let's check out the evil legalese. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Malibu Comics, and their immediate families or any goody-goody two-shoes out there. No goody-goody two-shoes. It's got to be a bad guy. All right, next here it says, Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Follow these rules to the letter or we'll whack you upside the head with a kielbasa. Really, wizard? <laughs> Taking us to the butcher shop, eh? All right, now the other thing here, like I said, we've been uh, following up on some of the past contests. I'm kind of disappointed here because they give you the contest winner's results, but couldn't they devote a page to showing us what these people turn in because a lot of it had to do with like you know actually creating things like for example this one I understand it says these are the groovy winners to several past wizard contests congrats cats the Malibu talent search way back in issue 41 writer Alan Govic of Brookfield Illinois penciler Chris Cosgrove 
of Dearborn, Michigan, and inker Danny D'Angelo of DeLand, Florida, will be working on an upcoming Malibu project. Look for it. Any of those guys go on to anything else? Let me know. But then Judge Dredd, number 47, scoring a Super NES video game system and a Judge Dredd game from Acclaim, an uncut sheet of Judge Dredd movie cards from Edge Entertainment, signed by Sly Stallone, and a whole slew of other Dredd prizes, Jumbo V. Benaria of Daly City, California. Probably could have won for his name alone. I agree, wizard. <laughs> Jumbo! But he got the three answers. Brian Boland. Okay, I was right about that. Mega City 1. Okay, I was right about that. And yes. See, this is all good. I, I got those right. I could have won too. Me and Jumbo. We could have been playing some Judge Dredd together. All right, now this next one here, this is the one I want to know about because this is the Bartman contest from issue 47. Deborah Jean Hopkins of Vista, California sent in the best top 10 excuses list for Bart to slip out of class and save the world as Bartman and is rewarded with a genuine animation cell from the Simpsons TV series. Well, show us the animation cell and tell us what her excuse she wrote in was. All right, finally, the missing link was from issue number 47. Fidel Arbaleas Jr. of Lakeland, Florida, you figured out that Action Comics number 692, Hard Case number 19, and X-Men Classics number 2 all featured one character taking the guise of another. So you win a spiffy X-Men number 58. Take a bow guy all right well that does it for cap's kooky contest and now it's time for robin's reading rainbow Alright guys, this is something I have been waiting for for a super long time, ever since we started the podcast, because we are going to talk about Sensational Spider-Man number zero, and then the first three-issue story arc for Ben Riley as Spider-Man. As I've mentioned before, I wasn't super into the Clone Saga. I grabbed a few issues here and there just to keep posted, but most of my information came from Wizard itself. And speaking of Wizard, they made it their number one pick for this issue, and they said, this comic begins a brand new chapter in Spider-Man's life. Yeah, yeah, we know. Been there, done that. But this time it looks like Marvel means it. Ben Riley, who grew up as Peter Parker and accidentally got switched with the clone in Amazing Spider-Man number 149, oops, is back in the spider suit for good. And not only do we get a newly tweaked suit designed by Mark Bagley, but this issue introduces a new supporting cast, romantic interest, job, apartment, the whole bean burrito. If that weren't enough, it introduces fan favorite Dan Jurgens to our favorite neighborhood web slinger. Quote, we intend to reinvigorate Spider-Man and create a whole new world for him, says writer-artist Jurgens. With Ben Riley, we can start from square one, and I intend to use that to make Spider-Man a lot of fun. Fans upset with the recent downer tone in the Spider titles can jump back on, he promises. Quote, for a long time, there's been a destructive momentum in the Spider-Verse that's been upsetting the status quo, he understates. Now, we're at ground zero, ready to start over and build things back up again. I think that's a heck of a lot more fun. Jurgens points out that this is the guy who got bit by the radioactive spider and grew up with Aunt May and and Uncle Ben. He's the real deal, but he's not the one married to Mary Jane, he explains. That makes him footloose and fancy free, and it means we can introduce new female characters for him to meet. In fact, he adds, I'll be focusing on the civilian characters more and adding lots of soap opera because that's part of the heritage. Adding to the festivities will be the lenticular cover that causes the image to change as you move it. Woo! Yeah, so this is like the first gibbet cover in a long time, but it's definitely one that got my attention as a kid. Anything lenticular, right? You know, and I, I 
I will mention it's not great in the way that it's produced because all the images are kind of jumbled together no matter what angle you turn it from. But it's basically Spider-Man kind of jumping forward in the old costume, kind of moving up, and then it morphs into the new costume. Now, a misconception I've had for all these years, I thought that, you know, having Dan Jurgens on the book to write and draw the book was meaning that he also was the one who redesigned it. I didn't know it was Mark Bagley until I opened the front cover here and it actually says new Spider-Man costume designed by Mark Bagley. So shout out to you, Mark Bagley. I actually had this special edition comic that was coming out when the Spider-Clone saga was kicking into gear and it showed all the alternate takes they had for a Scarlet Spider costume. And I thought maybe this one was part of that mix, but it was not. There's even a page in here later where you see a bunch of ideas that he has for a new costume and uh, none of them are the ones that were shown in that. So I guess Mark Bagley just has a whole sketchbook full of stuff. But the other interesting thing to note about this is that it opens with Ben Riley at Aunt May's grave, right? And so he is there with his, you know, scraggly beard. He's got his long hair and all those things. But actually, there was an expanded version of this in the mini comic that came packed in with this issue. So it's kind of cool that issue 52 was a direct lead in to the sensational Spider Man number zero in a lot of ways. And it's basically just him recounting his history from the origin and then what did Ben Riley do all those years when he was gone. Uh, anyway, so I just mentioned that because it's kind of a cool tie-in. Of course, he foils a robbery, a mugging that happens just outside the gates of the cemetery. He runs into Mary Jane's Aunt Anna Watson. Of course, she thinks he's Peter. She's like, well, where's Mary Jane? And he has to think on his feet, which has him start realizing, oh, I guess I look like Peter, so I can't be, you know, running around with the same look all this time. I got to come up with my new deal. Uh, So then he starts trying to figure out what he's going to do because he has no money. He has no job and he's talking about going to the pharmacy because he's got to put together his web fluid. He says here, have to scratch this together somehow without the benefit of a real lab or chemicals. Fortunately, my neighborhood pharmacy should have enough household items that I could buy off the shelf and turn into web fluid. Kind of reminds me of the way I first made my web fluid. And there is a lot of reference in this issue, like going back to basically reminding everybody, I'm the original Spider-Man. I'm actually Spider-Man. I'm not just a guy taking over the role. So there's some help with that. There's also some stuff here about this guy named Armada who has these robots and he's using it to break in, but then he meets this giant floating head, kind of like being from the Wizard of Oz, and is this character who we don't know who it is exactly yet. He's just kind of green and bald is how we're seeing him here, but he tells Armada, you must find this DIT chip and then I will pay you. And you don't know what the DIT chip is yet, but we'll find out soon enough. Of course, you have Ben is living in this really run-down kind of apartment. He's not making the rent. He's trying to charm his way out of it. He even goes to a diner, and he gets some food, and he's a few pennies short, and they just give it to him for free. And he's just like, do I really look that bad? No wonder Anna Watson thought something was wrong with me. I've become a charity case. <laughs> and then in the meantime, you see that uh, Armada is busy breaking into the Neuralport Complex Lab with his robots, and he calls them all by 
these different uh, female names. They're like his little robot girlfriends. But you also have Ben saying, well, I'm going to have to have a costume. I don't want to steal, but I know that at the fashion department of colleges, they always have extra scraps. So he goes in and then he starts pulling together material. And it's here you get that page I was mentioning before with all the different costume designs. So there's basically like a Doctor Strange looking Spider-Man. There's a 100% just Cyclops from X-Men Spider-Man. There's a lot of fun stuff here. So I'll definitely post this to social media so you guys can see it. Just kind of goofy. So anyway, Armada goes in. He steals this DIT chip. And he, to describe Armada, he looks to me, there was this game called King of the Monsters that was on the Neo Geo, which is basically like, you know, a kaiju fighting game. And all of them were different types of monsters, except for this one guy who was basically just a supersized superhero. And that's what Armada looks like to me. Like he's got this big winged helmet on. It's all orange and purple. So if you need a reference in your mind. Finally, we have Ben has finished putting the costume together. He kind of comes out of the windows in shadow. Then we get a double splash page where he says, your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man is back. Yeehaw! It actually is pretty great. Dan Jurgens knows how to do a dynamic image. So what do I think of the new costume design? I like it. Like as far as redesigns go, it wasn't like the super crazy armored look that Daredevil got or the heavy metal look that Thor got or the I don't know what Doctor Strange was. You know, like it sticks with, you know, kind of that top portion is what we're used to and it gives it a little bit of a new updated style. But like I had the action figure back in the day, the first Ben Riley Spider-Man figure that existed. So I've always been a fan of it. I don't really have any complaints. It wasn't offensive to my eye, I'll put it that way. Now, we're also introduced on the streets to this gal named Jessica who sees Spider-Man flying around and you see she's got like a fascination with him. She immediately starts taking photographs of him. She becomes an integral character later on. Meanwhile, Spider-Man goes in to try and stop Armada from stealing this DIT chip, but he is not quite successful and he makes off with both the scientist and the DIT chip. Spider-Man manages to at least save the scientist. But he's asking this doctor, what is the DIT chip all about? Says, we're experimenting with a new broadcasting technique. It's far from perfect, but it could revolutionize television beyond recognition. Look, Doc, I'll keep my peepers peeled for your chip. If I chase it down, I'll be sure to bring it back. Spider-Man, I can't thank you enough for saving my life. I feel like I should do something to express my gratitude. Here, here's all the money I have on me. There's at least $100 here. Please take it. Sorry, Doc, but my con contract doesn't allow me to take cash gifts. But now that you mention it, I do owe a lady 25 cents. If you could spare two bits, I'd be a happy little spider. So that's kind of cute, right? It's like, you know he needs the money, but his morals won't let him take it, but he'll take a quarter to help square himself away with the diner owner. You finally see who was the one pulling the strings behind the scenes. It is Mysterio. He says, we shall meet again soon enough, Spider-Man. And when we do, you'll rule the day that you ever crossed the path of Mysterio. I do have to say, though, I love, love, love this redesign of Mysterio because he's still got a cape. You know, he's got the classic gauntlets, but that's like the only thing that has remained. And everything else is all like these straps that run across him. The head is no longer a sphere, right? It's not this fishbowl head. It's just like this smoky, wispy, cloudy, like it's so mysterious and awesome looking. His dialogue throughout this is not fantastic, I would say, but uh, I 
I do like uh, the look of him, at least, no matter who's drawing him. It always comes out well. So anyway, at the very end of the issue, you see Ben is back at the graveyard in front of Uncle Ben and Aunt May's headstones. But now he has cut his hair. He has bleached his hair blonde. So he is his own guy. He's on to the next adventure, which is taking place in Sensational Spider-Man number one. So now it's an official ongoing title, right? So this first issue, we find out that there's a big cold snap hitting New York and everybody is off the streets. But he reads in a newspaper, if you miss these first three days, New York's mysterious new network, then tune in tonight and find out what everyone's talking about. Mystery vision. Call your cable service. Now He says, sounds interesting. Too bad I'm so broke that I don't have a TV. So you find out later that it ends up being a blessing. Uh, We also see that Ben has gotten a job at that diner where he paid that lady back. But also that girl Jessica shows up so he gets to know her better. She explains that she's a photo student. She's an art student. She and Ben hit it off. They decide they're going to kind of have a date. The uh, diner owner, she can kind of tell that they're liking each other. She lets him have the night off. When they get to the photo department he sees all these pictures of spider-man that she's taken but all of a sudden the dr ramirez the guy who he saved that you know but wasn't able to get the dit chip the creator of that chip is running off and you know he's like oh i recognize him but i can't say i recognize him then he makes an excuse saying oh i kind of feel bad i should get back to the diner and jessica says okay i'll take a rain check so he ends up back at the lab talking to dr ramirez finds he has now been hypnotized by all these monitors watching mystery vision and he even feels the pull and he tries to turn himself away he finally webs the screen so he doesn't have to look at it so dr ramirez doesn't have to look at it and that's where you get a greater explanation so he says for years i've been developing a special chip that would translate thoughts into broadcast images once perfected the need for writers directors actors and cameras would be eliminated if it were applied to tv programming one man could use his imagination to dream up stories and characters that ultimately program an entire network and this new mystery visions programming is so bizarre and unique that you think they have your chip i'll check into it he goes into this lobby and it's very clean even though it's inside this rundown warehouse and they say it's just to put off people i guess not bother them so he ends up going upstairs and sneaking in to talk to randolph hines who is the head of this mystery vision network says we're also experimenting with 3d broadcasts here take a look at the same programming through these goggles he puts on what look like cyclops goggles but they're supposedly 3d and when he does he's like hey what's that smoke and then he sees that it's actually mysterio he's like indeed it is my old friend and as for your precious spider sense have you forgotten that even in our very first meeting i was quite capable of jamming it is why he didn't detect there was a problem and you see this evil rudolph the red-nosed reindeer with skulls on its antlers break through the wall and mysterio tells him you know that there's this whole rampage going on so he's chasing an evil goblin there's an evil santa with spiked gloves and shoulder pads and he's out there trying to do all that except that none of it's really happening as mysterio explains he unknowingly placed these adhesive film-like image receivers over his eyes as well he sees my illusions and believes them to be real in return i get the greatest live programming ever so basically you got spider-man now with these screens essentially i guess over his eye lenses making him think all this stuff is happening but he's fighting nothing and in the meantime mysterio can make it look like he's fighting something and put it on tv but his web shooters get frozen because he's in the middle of a blizzard and now he's falling and he has no webs to stop his fall and that's continuing 
continuing in the next issue, but you do see here that Mysterio ends by saying Spider-Man equals viewers, viewers equal ratings, ratings equal advertising dollars. Groovy. Come on. <laughs> so yeah, kind of cheesy, but it's what Dan Jurgens promised, right? You know, this is not, you know, the deep, dark psyche of Spider-Man. He's not coming unglued. This is not ultraviolence. This is not some commentary on the world other than perhaps, you know, the changing world of people wanting to be famous, you know, a commentary on the media. But ultimately, it's a pretty frivolous storyline here. But again, you're trying to get away from so many years of Spider-Man self-destructing. Now, next up in Amazing Spider-Man number 408, I love this cover. Okay, so this is it's just basically like stark white. The Spider-Man logo is just kind of imprinted in snow. And then you see a few footsteps and then you see Spider-Man's body just sprawled out in the snow, a little bit covered up. Like it is just a beautiful image. I think Mark Bagley did a fantastic job on that. I also noticed that he signed it Bags. I did not know that that was kind of his, <laughs> his special nickname for himself. One thing I'll mention about the Amazing Spider-Man issue is that the paper quality went down because in the Sensational Spider-Man issues, it was slick paper, and this is kind of that more dull newsprint. But anyway, it opens on Spider-Man falling with his frozen web shooters. He manages to finally grab a wall with one arm, but it rips his arm out of the socket, and then he's just knocked out hanging there. So you learn that he can actually still hang to a wall even if he's not awake, which is interesting. Meanwhile, you have this Mysterio rant that tells you all about the 90s. <laughs> he says, with a bird's eye view of action like this, my new network will soon have better ratings than the OJ verdict. I wonder how Spider-Man will react when he discovers he's the star of a live broadcast. Yeah, so definitely you gotta have your OJ references. I mean, it was in the zeitgeist. It was what everybody was thinking of at this time. Apparently also Armada got captured after Spider-Man stopped him, which I didn't realize. So he's over on Rikers Island and then these two characters who look to be guards from the vault, you know, the supervillain prison. They say, oh, you know, guards, leave us alone. We have to interrogate this prisoner. But it turns out it's really just his little itty bitty robots projecting themselves to be those vault guards. So they give him his armor again and Armada breaks out. And then the rest of this issue, you know, Spider-Man's still hanging from the wall. And while he is doing that, he kind of wakes up and sees there's this gang battle going on. And there's really embarrassing 90s ghetto slang talk, you know, white guys trying to talk like they know how they talk on the streets. But Spider-Man interrupts because Mysterio makes him think that they're all these demons who look like Baraka from Mortal Kombat 2. But so he's fighting all these gang members thinking, you know, that they are not human. And also Mysterio is getting excited about that, but he says, I need a big finish if Spider-Man must die, and he certainly must. I owe it to my audience to provide them with an explosive climax. I can't fizzle out like Doc. Die Hard 3 or Star Trek 7. I was like, oh, that's kind of a, a rough review of Star Trek Generations and Die Hard with a Vengeance, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, you're seeing everybody is still glued to the TV watching Mysterio Vision. He breaks away. He helps this other kid that was part of, you know, one of the gangs, but now the kid's having second thoughts, seeing that, oh, you know, they just want to fight and my buddy left me and maybe we're not friends after all, all that kind of stuff. So you kind of have this subplot going on in the story, which uh, I guess it's fine. 
it shows that Ben Riley has heart, but it doesn't really fit into what we're going on with here. So Armada comes in, he attacks Spider-Man, all the gang members are fighting each other, some of them get knocked out in the battle, and then you have Armada there is blasting Ben Riley with this, you know, one of his robots is shooting him, but this is his, you know, gotta do it for Aunt May thing. Your little playthings can zap me all they want, but I'm not gonna surrender. I won't give up. I'll keep fighting until I find a way to beat you. Do you hear me, Armada? I will find a way! It's very melodramatic. It's very fun. And then the gang members finally decide to help out Spider-Man and they blast Armada. It doesn't hurt him, but it's a distraction. Gives Spider-Man enough time to take him out. And then you see that the lenses have cracked. He takes off the lenses and says, my vision has suddenly gone all screwy. It's filled with static and crazy zigzagging lines, just like what you see on busted television. Man, I must be the world's biggest chump. These transparent lenses were covering my eyepieces the whole time. Mysterio must have secretly planted them on me when he had me wear that stupid 3D visor. You know, so there you go. He finally figures out what's going on. Mysterio's angry. He's upset. And of course, Spidey is taking off to go find him and end the conflict. So now we are getting to the third and final installment of the Media Blizzard storyline. I don't even think I mentioned that that's what this whole storyline was called. Yes, Media Blizzard in adjectiveless Spider-Man number 65 with art duties by our buddy, yes, John Romita Jr. Not my favorite, as I have said before, but interestingly, now in this book, the pages are glossy again. So I just, I don't know if I just, because I picked them all up at the same store, so maybe they just had a different, yeah, because this doesn't say anything about it being like a premiere edition, maybe just certain titles they were giving that to. So anyway, it's called Unplugged. Very big on MTV at the time. So Ben Riley as Spider-Man has now arrived at the Mysterio Vision Network offices, but guess what? They're not there anymore. It was just an empty warehouse because everything was an illusion. But now Randolph Hines, aka Mysterio, is holding this big to-do at in this high-rise penthouse party. And he is there basically trying to get everybody to buy into Mysterio Vision. And you see here he says, as my ratings rise, first locally and then nationwide, I will have the one thing that has eluded me for far too long. Fame. You just gotta love this country. <laughs> so you see that Mysterio Vision has higher ratings than Fox, ABC, and NBC as they list here. But also, you notice that Ben Riley is at home and he's been sleeping and he's not looking too good. He just had a rough night. Jessica comes to hang out with him, but he's like, oh, sorry, just give me a second. But he realizes, oh, I better duck out and get into costume when this mail truck spins out of control and crashes. And he thinks that he's going to have to come up with an excuse, but then Jessica just runs off with her camera, starts taking pictures. He's like, there's something that's never happened to me before. My date, the freelance photographer, ducking out on me, letting me duck into this alley and get to work as Spider-Man. Glad I thought to add some antifreeze to the webbing chemicals last night. So yeah, he came up with a solution to the freezing problem. But what's interesting is he keeps trying to tell her to get out of the way and she won't. She just stays there, keeps taking pictures with a very serious face. Now, uh, I did read on past these issues back in the day, and I can tell you that it turns out that she is the daughter of the burglar who killed Uncle Ben. So it's like this huge like reveal and all this stuff that has to go on there. She wants revenge on Spider-Man, blah, blah, blah. Forgiveness, all those things that need to happen. So I think that's an interesting plot line that they dropped into it all. And anyway, so Ben saves the day and then he goes back to Dr. Ramirez, gives him 
the lenses that Mysterio put on his eye lenses and says, hey, can you reverse engineer this to give me basically a tracer so I can get back and find the signal, which he does. He shows up to battle Mysterio, but Mysterio makes him think that there is a giant dragon. He's like, oh yeah, well, I know it's just an illusion, but then it blasts him anyway. He's like, oh, that's a good illusion. You see, there was actually Mysterio that was blasting him, but he's in his full costume now again, even drawn by John Meter Jr. looks awesome in my mind. But he says, it's just an illusion. All I've got to do is stay focused on the tracking device and let it take me to, yow, that hurt. See? So it's like, how did he get hurt by a thing if it's just an illusion? Either way, finally, he destroys the circuitry inside the transmitter, which knocks out the signal and everybody says, hey. So then back up at the penthouse, one of Mysterio's lackeys is seeing that everybody is no longer watching the screen or excited to be at the party. He says, the backup transmitter kicked in. We're still broadcasting, but the ratings, they're dropping like a stone. No, this can't be happening. The explosion must have knocked out the subliminal broadcast circuitry. And then Spider-Man adds in, looks like if people aren't forced to watch your shows, Mysterio, they won't. That's the whole big thing at the end is Mysterio wanted people to watch and think he was a genius and make him famous. But Spider-Man says, in the end, Mysterio, I think it was really simple. Your shows were just no good. I was like, wow, okay, so that's ultimately, that's how you just want to end it. It's like, we need better quality television. Now, my memory of this storyline all these years, and I have reread it, you know, multiple times over the years, is that it was basically just ripping off Batman Forever. That's how I always felt about it, is that, oh, well, you know, that's basically what the Riddler was doing, right? You know, he had this thing that could control people's minds and make them watch his TV, or they would plug into his world, and then he would absorb their knowledge and their information and all that kind of stuff. So it was kind of very similar also with everything is very green, even on the covers, like things are this very like neon green. It's kind of some interesting ink they were using. So I think it definitely had an influence there, but it's not a hundred percent the same close enough. But did I like these issues? Did I like the introduction of Ben Riley? I really did. It is something that has endeared me to the character all these years. And though I was still so high on uh, other comics at this time that I didn't keep buying Spider-Man religiously after this, the main reason being that I didn't want to buy four Spider-Man books each month. Like if it was always going to be interconnected storylines like they had been doing over in Superman, I didn't want to make that financial commitment. But as far as Ben Riley being Spider-Man, it was a character that I said, you know what? I think for all the crap that Wizard was giving the clone saga, that he is a well-written character, that he is a character that actually has his own world to exist in while kind of jumping into, you know, the world that the Peter Parker we were following had established, right? But really, ultimately, his his whole group of people that he deals with is his own, and I think that's fine. Like, I think it keeps up with Spider-Man like Dan Jurgens. He said he was going to return him to fun, and he accomplished that. So, I really uh, am a proponent of the Ben Riley Spider-Man, at least as long as he is the main Spider-Man. Whenever he is sidelined or he's teamed up with the other Peter Parker, then it becomes a little bit more confusing. Like, well, they're just the same person, right? But when they're he's out on his own. Pretty cool solo hero. I dig it. I loved this era of Spider-Man. But did you? Why don't you tell us on social media? I'd love to hear your review. But now here's something you didn't see coming. Yeah! 
All right. Well, you guys know that Wizard is totally obsessed with monkeys, yes? <laughs> yeah, it just seems like they were always dropping jokes about monkeys doing this, monkeys doing that. But as a result, you might also recall a while back, there was a comment made about a character called Keep Squeezing Them Monkeys Lad on one of the top 10 lists. Well, the fans started running with it until the character became an actual costumed feature in the magazine. But for this month's Bunny Award, Jim McLaughlin had to print an entire letter from a guy named Royal McGraw of Athens, Georgia. So get ready for some nonsense. Mr. McLaughlin, I was aghast to see in Wizard number 48's top 10 superhero names that haven't been used yet. The Keep Squeezing Them Monkeys lad was the victim of such childish and misguided humor. As one of the longest enduring characters in comics history, he deserves your respect. Wait, I'm overstepping my bounds. You see, he hasn't actually been in any comics at all, but he was almost the greatest character ever. Keep Squeezing Them Monkeys, lad, was a creation of the late Walt Disney. As a young cartoonist, Walt drew a weekly strip whose cast included an ensemble of primates, which Laddie would squeeze for no apparent reason. There was a dispute over the moral content of the strip, and it was eventually discontinued. Later, Walt traded the character to a young Stan Lee in exchange for a sketch of a rodent known only as Mickey. <laughs> so Stan Lee created Mickey Mouse and gave it to Walt Disney. Loving it. Stan was delighted to finally gain possession of one of his beloved favorites and began scripting Keep Squeezing Them Monkeys Lad into early issues of The Amazing Spider-Man and X-Men. Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby refused to draw the character in, but the Keep Squeezing Them Monkeys Lad scripts continued to pour from Lee's hands. The conflicts between writer and artist escalated and eventually resulted in an unfortunate incident involving three gallons of orange juice, a chihuahua, and a weed whacker. It was horrible, lamented Ditko. Stan Lee concurred. The most terrible thing I've ever seen. Keep Squeezing That Monkey's Lad was sold to DC Comics. Not really, said DC editor Dick Giordano. Not sold so much as given. They gave us the character. We didn't really want him either, but we had him now. I posted his specs on the office wall. I figured if someone was interested, they would take him. Little did Giordano know, someone was interested. He was pretty neat looking, said writer-artist John Byrne. I wanted to expand on his personality, get some sympathy for him. I mean, why does he squeeze monkeys? Does he hate them? Does he hate primates in general? or just monkeys? I figured with a little tweaking, he would fit perfectly into the new Superman story I was writing. Unfortunately, Bird's idea was shot down, and Keep Squeezing the Monkeys Lad was replaced by Metallo. Somehow, in the corporate shuffle after Zero Hour, KSTM Lad was lost. He eventually resurfaced in Image Comics, playing an integral part in Deathmate. Well, no, said Jim Lee. He wasn't actually in it, but he should have been. Regardless, Jim Lee has promised to place Keep Squeezing the Monkeys Lad in a prominent role in upcoming Wildstorm Comics. He'll be really important, said Lee. I mean it. Hey, why does he squeeze these monkeys anyway? So you see, Keep Squeezing the Monkeys Lad is an established character with a past and a present and a future. I know someday the simian asphyxiator will grow in popularity to epic proportions. To which Jimmy McLaughlin responds, it just goes to show you that Sir Isaac Newton was right. For every action, there is a reaction. We cap on Keep Squeezing the Monkeys Lad and we get a nasty letter. We heartily apologize for this obvious blunder. I'm just glad we didn't get any letters about Mr. Hurts What I Pee. <laughs> this is the kind of like alternate reality, what if madness that I appreciate, you know, just from the readers of Wizard, from Wizard itself when they choose to do that, like just imagine this world, but that one actually fit together for me in such a beautiful way. But there you have it, the origin of Keep Squeezing That Monkeys Lad, and you better believe that we'll be back with more coverage, the saga of Keep Squeezing That Monkeys Lad. Lad. But on to more madness.
All right, well, here we are again, taking a look at some of the Wizards' picks. You know, the number one pick here is Sensational Spider-Man number zero, which we just covered. But over on the other page is the Sabretooth special number one, which I was totally unaware of. He's not even wearing his famous duds. He's just got some ripped jeans and a shredded tank top. But uh, let's see what Wizard has to say about this. Some writers have no respect for great institutions, you know? Take Fabian Nicieza, writer on the Sabretooth one-shot, which continues from Uncanny X-Men number 328 and X-Men number 48. We figured we'd pick his little comic and show our appreciation for that swell butt-kissing interview he did in issue 50 with the head cheese. Oh wait, that's the big cheese. Head cheese is something far worse than even Garab. Anyway, we rig up Fabian to get the scoop figure and he'll return our call instantaneously like comics bigwigs usually do. So two whole days later when we hit the office, here's what's playing on the Pick Central answering machine. Hi, this is Fabian. Once again, Wizard goes out on a limb with its hot pick, choosing Sabretooth's one shot in which Sabretooth has escaped from the mansion and is tearing a bloody rampage through New York. The X-Men have to stop him, but at what cost? Yeah, that's a heck of a stretch there, Wizard. Picking this one is a hot pick. Yeah, this one wasn't going to sell without your help. Maybe you should have picked Captain Marvel number two as your hot pick. In that one, the main character gets laid. Now that's a stretch for a hot pick. It's tough getting respect these days, you know? <laughs> Wizard doing their best Rodney Dangerfield. All right, well, never read it. If you have, tell us, is it any good? Do you like that Gary Frank art? Now, the other one here, you know, this is in the midst of Marvel versus DC, DC versus Marvel, and they have a Green Lantern Silver Surfer crossover, which is actually referenced in those pages, which I found interesting when I was rereading them recently. I was like, oh, they have to fight each other in DC versus Marvel, but they actually know each other already. This is by Daryl Banks and Terry Austin on the art, which is awesome, and Ron Mars, of course, when you got Green Lantern. But here's what Wizard says about it. Talk about your cosmic crossovers. This book combines two of the most powerful heroes in the DC Marvel Universe against two of its most overwhelming foes, Thanos and Parallax, aka Hal Jordan, the rogue Green Lantern. This one's a little different than most crossovers, says writer Ron Mars. That's because each bad guy tricks one of the heroes into helping him. Here's the setup. Thanos enters the DC Universe through a rift and deceives Kyle... Green Lantern Rainer, into helping him tap the power ring like a big green energizer. That gives Thanos the power he needs to destroy the universe. Meanwhile, Parallax crashes into the Marvel Universe through the rift. He's chasing the cyborg Superman, who Hal wants to pulverize because he made Coast City go boom. Parallax meets the Surfer and talks him into using his cosmic power to help recreate the universe the way Hal thinks it ought to be. With Thanos using Kyle to destroy everything and Hal using the Surfer to recreate everything, and the two heroes slowly realizing what the heck's happening, you just know that no of these guys are really going to get along. That results in an ultimate clash among all four at the center of the universe. The art is wonderful, Mars adds. These are some absolutely gorgeous pages. I'm sure this is in Steven Sapelis's long box, and a lot of you probably had it too, so let's hear about it on social media, guys. Did you like it? Did you love it? Well, we'll hear about it soon enough, I am sure. Next up here, we have Sid City Silent Night. Yes, Sid City, Frank Miller, still the hot thing at this time. Frank Miller has done some top-notch comics work through the years, so we sit up and take notice when Frank tells us that his standalone issue is something special. I've gotta say that of all the art jobs I've ever done, this is the one I'm proudest of, he says. Something really good happened here. His art style, he explains, is much more illustrative than a lot of the other things I've done. The storytelling is extremely unusual. For one thing, the tale is nearly wordless, employing just one word balloon in its entire 26 pages, but it still features the stark black and white style that provides such a moody noir impact to the series. He subs up the basic plot simply. 
It's Christmas Eve, and Marv can't sleep, so he goes out for a walk, he says. And he plays a sort of good Samaritan, but this is Marv, he chuckles, so it's a different kind of good Samaritan. But Miller demurs on any other goodies. I'm deliberately keeping quiet on this one, because I think it has to be read as a graphic and experienced. He says, I would rather take the chance that people will show up and enjoy it when they see it. Sounds like the odds are pretty good on that one. All right, people love their Frank Miller, Sid City, exciting, yes? Now, I like this here. This is kind of interesting. We're jumping around to a few more of these, which is League of Justice number one. I have never heard of League of Justice number one, but it was from DC. So here's what Wizard has to tell us about it. This funky Elseworlds tale, okay, well, that would be why, sees a bunch of teenagers transported to a medieval world where they find themselves in the middle of a war between the Dark Lords of the Netherworld and a whole bunch of good guys. Hey, just like that cool old Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. Wonder if Uni will show up. These good Good guys in question just happen to be some pretty different versions of a familiar group of DC heroes that are always out for justice. Hmm. That was by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano. Yeah, so uh, I definitely remember that Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, Saturday Mornings, right? And he gets a lot of shout-outs these days, but my buddy Logan 77 on Twitter, Jeff, huge fan of that Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. All he wants is a wrap-up episode, you know, he'd love a, a TV movie version just to get it right. Now, also here, this Powers That Be from Broadway Comics, this is Powers That Be number one, here's something different. A young kid named Core, whose dad just happens to be from some other planet, wakes up in New York City to find a 1989 Cadillac sedan impaled on the top of the Chrysler building. You'll also meet a pretty hot babe called Fatal, who's definitely more than a handful. Confused and intrigued, join the club by Jim Shooter, Andrew Wendell, J.G. Jones, Art Nichols, and Frank McLaughlin. So, I've actually read this Powers That Be issue, and this character has like a bowl cut. It looks like it's based on Jim Shooter or something. Like, it is so weird. It's kind of like invincible on some level but yeah I, it was it did not catch my attention at all Fatal on the other side I did enjoy aside from you know some of the ultimate content of the portrayal of the female character but in general it was actually a pretty good story but let's take a look here now and what was going on in the world of Spawn number 38 and 39 with guest artists Tony Daniel and Kevin Conrad on issue 38 you'll see the return of the nastier deadlier curse who gets his mouth washed out with soap and sent to his room with no supper. There's also a new crime fighter on the streets known as Ape X. Then over in spawn number 39, wow, two issues in one month? Somebody pinch me. You'll read a most touching story about a little boy who just wants to help his poverty-stricken family. Don't worry, there's a happy ending. Yeah, always that serious stuff, right, Todd? Gotta be so serious. All right, now over on the Superman books, Wounded! Wounded! Dead or alive! I'm a cowboy! And on a steel horse and ride! Oh no, that wasn't me just freaking out, guys. That's literally what they have printed in here. <laughs> because as they say, looks like Soups is still in trouble with the law. Intergalactic law, that is. Over at Action Comics number 717, the big S finds himself running from not only the Intergalactic Tribunal, but the Cyborg as well. Lug your ball and chain over to Superman the Man of Steel number 52, where Superman gives it to the Cyborg, but good. Unfortunately, those silly little plant-destroying charges still stand. For the trial's final outcome, don't 
Don't Miss Superman number 108, where the Man of Steel's sentence is passed. He's rocketed towards his former homeworld, or what's left of it now. But with all those huge chunks of kryptonite just floating around there, won't that mean... <gasps> oh, I get it. Nice knowing you, soups. And just to wrap up all those loose heads, pick up Adventures of Superman number 531 for the conclusion to the trial of Superman. Based on the trial's outcome, Alpha Centurion's got a big decision to make. Not a good month to be a Superman fan. <laughs> Curious to know, if you were a Superman fan reading those comics, how did you fare? Did you enjoy what they were bringing you at this trial of Superman? I know that uh, people got a kick out of the poster that they had, which literally was like an Old West wanted poster. Superman had his stubble and his long hair. He's not looking good. Bags under his eyes. All right. This other one here is one that I heard mentioned as I was reading through the issue. Tug and Buster, number one from Art and Soul Comics. This hysterical new series by Mark Hempel. You might remember him from The Sandman and Gregory. Pokes fun at the pure manliness of the male species. There's the large, rarely speaking Tug, who's got like 90 gallons of oil in his hair and a perpetual five o'clock shadow. And then, of course, there's his little buddy Buster, who worships Tug for all that he is. Check out these two pals as they embark on an eternal quest for babes. Yeah, I'm sure this has aged very well, Tug and Buster. <laughs> I've never heard of it, and just the name alone is kind of ridiculous. All right, close it out here, though. Wolverine number 97. Well, kitties, looks like you may be getting your wish soon. Now that Cable's nasty son Genesis has the animantium, he just needs somewhere or someone to put it so he could have his very own agent of death and destruction. And guess who the likely victim is? Hint, he's short, mean, hairy, and has a bunch of claws, and he's not Gary Coleman. By Larry Hama, Adam Kubert, and Dan Green. I did not know Cable had a son? Whatever happened to this Genesis guy? Anybody? Fill us in. Now, finally, this What I'm Reading section where they talk to a comic book pro. They're talking to Mark Wade this time around, writer of DC's Flash and Impulse and Marvel's Captain America and X-Men, and of course, Kingdom Come, which was just about to arrive. He says, Hate is just a scream. It's one of the few comics that actually make me laugh out loud. I'm reading Uncle Scrooge because I really dig Don Rosa's life and times of Scrooge McDuck. Stray Bullets is interesting. Astro City I'm liking a lot. I like Kurt's everyman perspective on stuff. Kurt has a lot of imagination and Kurt Unleashed is fun to watch. And I like Scroll Kill Crew because anything that's irreverent to the Marvel Universe is thumbs up with me. Wow, so we've actually discussed and covered a lot of those on the podcast and yeah, gotta agree. I mean, Astro City top notch. Scroll Kill Crew was just a hoot. So there you go with some of Wizard's top picks there. I'll be curious to know how many of you actually read those comics back in the day. Right now, we're going to get into the top 10 comics list for this month. This is October 1995's hottest back issues. And so here is what is going on. I'm not going to read every single description here. I'll highlight a few, but number one was Lady Death, number one. So she was back on top there, looking awesome. And then the X-Files, number one, was in the number two spot. They say here in this issue, Professor Xavier and Cyclops go up against the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants in the Savage Land. Uh, what's that? Wrong X? Uh, sorry. So easy to get mixed up these days. Despite the fact that it's a pretty darn popular comic nowadays, plus well-written 
well-written and well-drawn, we just can't help but get torqued off this whole wasteful X-Files thing. Talk about your government excesses. We don't care about verifying UFOs. Fix our friggin' potholes already. We don't need secret agents hunting pyrotechnic circus freaks. We need guys spreading asphalt on the freeway. Then again, Adventures of a Highway Department Man wouldn't make for a very interesting comic. <laughs> but then at number three is she number one. Again, perpetually at number three, unfortunately. But it says, hey, we think we're onto something here. Check it out. Lady Death. She's pasty as all hell. That X-Files Dana Scully chick, she looks like she don't get too much sun herself, and she's always wearing a trench coat. She? Again, some frail whose face is whiter than Moby Dick. People say bad girls are all the rage. Try pasty girls. That's where it's at. Get out of the tanning booths, lady. Shut yourself in a windowless room for six months, and you too can be a comic book heroine and carry swords. Big swords. That helps. <laughs> so yeah, just kind of an interesting take there that they had. Uh, number five is X-Man number one. Number six is Jed 13 number one of the ongoing series. This is interesting, their take here. Want to know what makes Jed 13 so gosh darn popular? It's all about adolescent wish fulfillment. Everything a 14-year-old wants or can identify with is here. Want to hang by the pool with fabulous comic book babes and show them your boogers? We got grunge. Are you an adolescent girl self-conscious about your weight? Well, so is Freefall. Belly button rings? We think the whole team has them. It's your total 14-year-old angst and pimple package. <laughs> I do have to mention, like, this was that era, right? Everybody had a tongue ring or a belly button ring. I mean, at least in my neck of the woods, in my high school, like, that was all the rage, especially the tongue studs. Like, I, I can't count how many girls I knew that had those, and I was just like, okay, that's wild, man. Number seven is the X-Files number two, and then number eight is Ash number one. It says, these guys, Quesada and Palmiotti, some more like Mexican food than comic creators. Hey, excuse me, waiter, I'll have the chicken Quesada with extra Palmiotti sauce. <laughs> <laughs> but all culinary kidding aside, this comic is in the midst of a slow burn up the charts. It took people a while to notice Ash, but now that they have the adventures of superhero firefighter Ashley Quinn and his purple motorcycle, we think he stole it from Prince, are pretty popular indeed. Okay, and then number nine is she number two. Now this is interesting because they, uh... I guess clear up some confusion. You know, there's always the Magneto Magneto back in the day, but this says here, the most confusing name and logo in comics makes its second appearance on our charts this month. For the record, it's pronounced she, not shy. And yes, it is spelled she, not chi, like some people seem to think. And it's published in Queens, New York, where all the addresses have block numbers and house numbers and a dash in the middle. Good thing this quality-filled comic is so well-liked, because it sure can get confusing. So yeah, there you go. I guess some people thought she was called Chai or Shy. And at the number 10 spot is the X-Men Omega, which wrapped up the Age of Apocalypse storyline. But also here, they add the next 10. So basically say it's a top 20 list now, but they're not going to write about them all. So Number 11 is Vengeance of Vampirella, number one. Number 12 is Weapon X, number one. Number 13 is Lady Death, number one for her uh, mini next miniseries. Uh, number 14 is Wolverine, number 75. 15 is Lady Death, miniseries number two. Number 16 is Gen 13, miniseries number one. Number 17 is Gen 13, regular series number two. Number 18 is Preacher, number one. Number 19 is Amazing Spider-Man, number 400. And number 20 is Generation X, number one. So those were the hottest comics there coming into the 
the end of 1995. So that's pretty interesting just to note how many of them were just the same series, different issues of the very popular characters. So that's the way it goes. All right. Well, that does it for this episode of Wizards Half. We want to thank you so much for joining us one more time around. And again, like I say, you're going to want to keep an eye on the YouTube channel because the Halloween costume contest with Michael and I are going through all of the costumes, giving our commentary, give it our thoughts. And man, they upped their game for sure in 1995. It's a good one. Plus, you want to make sure that you are checking out all the regular podcast content that we're bringing you because in addition to our main episodes and our mini episodes, like I mentioned, we have our bonus episode about the Bad Girls special and there is more to come as Wizard continued to release special issues that became a normal way to uh, increase their publication circulation. And of course, uh, we'll continue to make it interesting with lots of great guests. I will tell you, Michael is particularly excited about an upcoming guest who I will tell you about on the next mini episode. Don't want to spoil it just yet, Uh, but it's probably somebody you know and he knew and I didn't know. So uh, it's exciting things happening on the show and for all the people that love listening, that's you. Go ahead and reach out to us on social media at Wizards Comics, on Twitter at Wizards underscore comics, on Instagram. Tell your friends, leave us some reviews, and until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.